For those of you who were not here last week, I, I spent the evening trying to point out how the excessive idealism that we carry in our lives and especially in our spiritual practice can be, instead of the, uh, the expected, expected cause of happiness and well-being, becomes another cause of tension. And I tried to remind everyone that the, that the practice is fulfilled by just relaxing, simple moments of mindful attention, kindness, interest in what's happening in the living present, uh, those simple moments when you add them all up make, uh, make for a, a change of heart and change of mind, but, but it, it doesn't happen from holding on our shoulders the burden of this of the demand and the need to be the great Buddha of the age and to become a perfectly um, whatever our idea of the best is because there is such a tendency toward this sense that it has to be, that we have to be the best. So the whole evening we just kept relaxing into the simple reality of the present moment because that's where it all takes place. And if we do that, those short periods many times, there is a, a change of heart and a, an easing of our distress and our heart releases. But it's just a moment at a time. So if you look beyond the simple moments, you're overlooking the, the vital point of our practice. It's always arrived at in the present moment. As... Um, the great teacher Alan Watts put it, we don't uh, make music or we don't dance in order to arrive at a particular place on the floor. We don't make music in order to reach the end of the composition. And when we dance, the dance itself is the point. When we make music, the music itself is the point. And the same is true in meditation, that the point is always arrived at in the present moment. So his message was, dig the present. You know, he's the beat guy. Dig the present, groove with the eternal now, and see that the place where it's at is simply here and now. So that may, in some ways, let you off the hook for all of that excessive drive and, and tension that has been uh, keeping you uh, practicing with your hair on fire, but in order to become the best or improve or become special. And it's uh, and prevented you from see, feeling the specialness of, of just being conscious. Just how amazing is that? Just the fact of being aware in this room and have these miraculous faculties, the senses, the eyes that see, that's amazing in itself. The ears that hear, the nose that smells, the tongue that picks up the burst of flavor and the fading and all of that. And then the body that is so unbelievably sensitive. And then the heart that quivers in the face of, of pain. All of that is amazing and it's so overlooked while we're busy trying to become Buddhas. 
or Jesus or whatever. So Ajahn, I left you last week at the end of the night by reading the words or recounting the words of Ajahn Sumedho where he said, you know, instead of being the great Buddha of the age, Maitreya radiating love throughout the world, just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go. And says that, you know, if you get to, if you become the world-renowned authority on Buddhism and being invited to great Buddhist conferences, that's a real drag. So just let go. And so you may have gotten the idea that, that you just let go a little. And Ajahn Chah said the same thing. You let go a little, you'll have a little peace. You let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And you let go completely, you have complete peace and freedom. But it all sounds kind of easy, too. And it is. It's easier than you think, and it is only a moment at a time. But Ajahn Sumedho wisely didn't stop with let go. He said to make this letting, let this letting go a constant refrain in your mind. He says the important thing in meditation practice is to be determined to wake up to be constant and resolute. And this is not, he says, it's not to become conceited, you know, inflated or foolish, but resolute, even when the going is tough. Remind yourself of the Buddha, which just means remind yourself of this kind of primordial wakefulness in you, this amazing capacity to be aware. Remind yourself of the Buddha. Remind yourself of the Dharma, the Dharma, in the most immediate sense, is whatever is happening here. Whatever the Dharma means, truth. And remind yourself of the Sangha, of other people who are also want to want to know what, want to be able to live a life in the living present, rather than be obsessed all the time with what's next. And to be to remind yourself of that. But then he says, stay with it. Let go of the arising and passing of despair, of anguish, of pain, of doubt, of everything that arises and passes that we habitually cling to and identify with. Keep this letting go like a constant refrain in your mind so it pops up on its own no matter where you are. So his, his, there is still within that teaching, there is an ideal. There's an ideal that is fulfilled every moment, that you can, in this very life, wake up or be awake to such an extent that, that, you, that this quality of letting go, this immersion in the life of the present moment becomes um, something that is, um, that is satisfying, deep, um, enough, that it's Yes, it's just a moment of time, but it, de- it does depend to some degree on your aspiration, on your intention. When the Buddha turned the wheel of the Dharma and offered the, the first teachings to his old ascetic friends who he knew were, were interested in, in waking up to life and seeing life clearly, he went and he, uh, he started to speak to them and 
he shared his, the famous sutra called the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, the Dhammachaka Sutta. And he, in his teaching, he said, life is tough. As you've all probably all know the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, life is difficult. It has things that are hard to bear. What makes it, what turns that into mental suffering, the basic unreliability of things, what turns it into mental suffering is our, our trying to make it other than the way it is. It's being in contention with reality. And that expresses itself as a constant craving for something other than what's happening. That shows itself as an endless desire for pleasures, the avoidance of, of anything that is unpleasant when both are part of life. And uh, an intense obsession with trying to become somebody and trying to get somewhere. So this, um, this causes mental distress. And he also said that there's an end to that, that we can all find relief. And as last week put it, that relief is to be realized in relaxing moment by moment. But then he said that there is a path. So that relief, just in the idea of relief is one thing, but the path, a path, knowing that there is a path and then inclining one's heart toward this path is what gives fuel, what gives energy, what gives a direction to that and meaning to why we would want to relax, why we, we want to be here. We want to be here, relax, so that we're not, so that we're not uh, trying to get somewhere else all the time. Because that's suffering. That is mental suffering. Is being unable to, to live the life that we're living. Being human doings excessively to the extent that we stop being the human beings that we are. There, I think there's a reason why we were called human beings. We're meant to be ourselves. Be, to know what that's like. But if we're going headlong into what's next, sometimes we just don't even, we're just on automatic pilot, just zooming through the day. I realize my whole, you know, I'm just like everyone else, I'm scheduled. And sometimes I can, I can pretty much stay chilled out as I go through the many, many things and many people that I meet with every day. But on the other hand, sometimes at the end of the day, I've just been just carried along by my routine. And I haven't really, really stopped. I haven't really taken stock, taken a look at the miracle of what's actually unfolding every moment. And I think it's because we miss that miracle that it, then life seems more mundane. Mundane things seem mundane instead of the mundane things being uh, potentially amazing. The, water in the sink, the toothbrush in my mouth, the, the, the motoring of my arm as I feed myself. All of that, if you, if you get close enough to it, it's, it's amazing. It's how, so easy to miss all of that. So the teachings give a, a reason and an energy to give in to this longing that we have to 
to feel fulfilled, to feel a sufficiency, to feel enough, that's often postponed to some to-do list that if, if I get to the end of my list, then I'll be okay. And then meanwhile, life's what's happening while I'm trying to get through my day or my to-do list. So what followed the Buddha's teaching on the Four Noble Truths, life has challenges that are inevitable, the, what turns that into a lot of mental suffering is wanting it to be other than the way it is, that the possibility that we can find relief right in the middle of it all, a sure heart's relief, and that there's a path. That path has, the last part of that path is the Noble Eightfold Path, and it has different elements into it. First element, you can do it in, it's like a hologram, so you could do it in, you could point to anything and it could be the beginning, but I'll start with the, the wise understanding. Uh, the, there's the, the wise, the, there's, there's different dimensions of wise understanding, but part of it is understanding that our actions, whatever we do in the here and now, this is called a mundane wise view, what, what we do here and now all has results. Everything that we think repeatedly, everything that we say, everything that we do, our actions have results. And, and so that's essentially describing that there is what's conventionally called karma, cause and effect. But the unique contribution that the Buddha made in the discussion, in, in the elaboration of this concept of karma, that actions have results, was that the motivation, the intention behind an action, what, it, what the engine that's driving an action is what determines the result. And the deeper wise understanding is that all of this, all of this, um, obsession with what's next, all of this sense of becoming, always in that geared toward becoming, toward accomplishment, toward going somewhere, all of this feeds an idea about ourselves that one, we are somebody that exists apart from everybody else, and that, that's a kind of illusion of sorts. Two, that, that, um, that there's something, some inherent solidity to ourselves. And wise understanding says that all of that is, is um, and I don't want to elaborate too much on this tonight, but all of that idea of ourselves is mostly a story. It's mostly a narrative. It's not that you're not here, you're all here. Each person has a unique individuality, but that, that demanding, driving, wanting, waiting, hoping, expecting mind, and the person who's the center of that big drama, that person really doesn't exist as a separate individual. It's a story. And that that story is empty of a real abiding self. And when you, if you see through that illusion, you'll see that that illusion of separateness when it falls away, reveals a deep 
experience of interbeing, that nothing exists independently apart from everything else. And that whole story of me keeps making the idea that I'm so separate. And when that is in quiescence, and it does get quiet in every moment when we're really present, but when that quiets down, we feel that we feel this what the what was called in the Sanskrit or Pali is called uh, tata. We feel the suchness of life, the way that the one taste, how everything is here, but it's much more intimate and connected than we normally think about our lives. And it's partly this feeling of separateness that drives so much of our conflicts and our egoism and our individualism and our, and our, um, our demand that everything has to be good, better, best, the comparing mind, the judging mind, the, you know, so much flows from that, from that fixation that we have on our, our self-view, our view of self which is not yourself. You're here, but you're not describable. You're just so much more um, interesting than the story that plays through your mind. So out of that deeper understanding of wise understanding and the understanding that our actions have results comes the second limb of the Eightfold Path, which is what's called right thought or right intention. So the whole path of practice, the whole reason we want to, to relax, be present, is to be in harmony with life, is to be free in the middle of our life, not be bound up in our stories, not be bound up in, in, um, in thinking that we are so separate and then going along and not realizing the impact of our thoughts and our words and our actions, that they're affecting us and they're, we're being affected by everyone else and we're all in this thing together. Now, someone was telling me today about the way their company works. And their company works, I understand from what she told me, her company works just like many companies that they compete for, a, they try to get a grant from the the government or from someone to be able to do some kind of research. And they, in order to get that grant, they promise that they will uh, get such and such of information in, in a particular amount of time. And they, they're competing with others, I guess, because they, they, um, they promise that they will get the information uh, in a time that they can't really do it. But then, after they've made that, that unrealistic promise, then they end up working all their workers so hard that everybody right down the line becomes burnt out, pushed to the deadlines. And, and her, her understanding is that that's how companies are. But there's a fruit to that. There's a karma to that. No, that little decision at the beginning doesn't exist in a vacuum, apart from everything that happens to every person in that company. And who knows the reach of that? And each person in that company, all of their relationships and their families, and, and it's just endless. And so it, we don't, we're not as independent as we think. So we want, to, we want to somehow, given all these circumstances, 
find some way of having harmony. And it isn't, it isn't to become excessively idealistic, as I was saying last night, but it's to give a little juice to, to have enough understanding that you know, why do I want to relax into the present moment more? Because it's likely that I will, um, I will want less that I don't have, I will be a lot less irritated and be a lot less, a lot less angry, and I will cause a lot less harm. So the three parts of right thought, the three main parts are the intention for renunciation. And renunciation, that's mostly just to balance our excessive desiring mind and to see, to, to you know, renounce our obsession with the next best gadget or the net, whatever it is, that just that renouncing that, that suffering-causing habit of feeding the wanting mind. So desire, so intention for renunciation, you have to be a little bit present to do that. And then intention to, toward, um, uh, toward um, kindness, intention to, to uh, loving kindness, to goodwill, and that counters our tendency uh, toward ill will and, and hatred. So to be intending every day, the first, uh, to me, first thing you could do in, in the morning, some form or another, and everybody has their own ways of setting intentions, but the intention for enunciation, which means let me let me accept what comes today and say goodbye to what goes. Let me, let me practice contentment. Let me practice sufficiency. Let me practice simplicity today. Does that seem attractive to you? It, isn't it amazing just hearing the word simplicity? My mind quiets down a little bit. But think about our actions all day. Are they breeding simplicity? So somehow we have to incline our attention, our intentions toward simplicity. Toward, so that's part of renunciation, and inclining toward goodwill. So that would be arousing in your mind thoughts of loving kindness. Again, a little bit at a time. You don't have to become the great lover of the great lover of the universe. Just a little loving kindness, but let it be fueled by this understanding that it makes a difference. It makes a difference to you, it makes a difference for the people who have to live around you every day, it makes a difference to the whole world even though we can't feel the full reach of that. And then the last intention, so intention for renunciation, intention for Goodwill, and the last one is the intention for non-harming. The intention for non-harming uh, counteracts our chronic tendency to cause harm with our speech, with our use of resources, with our sexuality, with the excessive use of intoxicants, with our, um, with our livelihood, with our co-workers. So the intention 
to practice non-harming. Great intention. Everything, as one teacher put it, everything hangs on the tip of motivation. Everything is determined by the intention behind it. And if you, um, yeah, we can relax and you relax a little, you'll have a little peace. You relax a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. But there is a, there's something um, that makes it juicy if, you, if it's fueled by wisdom and by love. So many people I know recite the, the Metta Sutra every day something as a way of inclining toward goodwill. And you can relax while you do it. Again, don't be too grandiose about it. But this is what the Buddha suggests one should do. He says, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know that there is a path of peace. Be able and upright, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened, unburdened with duties. Doesn't mean you don't have duties, but not burdened by them. Unburdened with duties, frugal in, your way, in their ways. Peaceful and calm, wise and skillful. Not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease. So I'd like to do this, just a little sidebar. I do, I still do, after all these years, because I was so affected when I first moved to San Francisco by feeling how cold it was. Today was literally cold, but how cold the, the vibes were, because I came from a small city. I used to walk down the street as a way of of feeling a little connected. I would say under my breath, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy. I love you, I love you, I love you. And it opened up a feeling of kinship with the people around me. And it was quite transformational just to have that little refrain in my mind, may you be happy, may you be happy, and inclining in that way. So this is ba basically the Buddha saying, wishing in gladness and safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies, downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking. So we remember it. he's bringing it right back to your immediate experience. So don't get too grandiose about this. You can do this from where you're sitting, right where life is touching you. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. 
Now, isn't it amazing? He talks about it as the sublime abiding, but we're right where we are, just sharing and feeling goodwill toward all beings. You don't have to lift out of your seat to find exactly what you're looking for. The way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. Anyway, that was just me. Once you sustain this recollection, this is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from the dependency on all the sense desires, is not born again into the, into the cycles of suffering in our mind. We just step off of that wheel of always looking ahead, looking back, missing life right where it touches us. So this may not be if your intention is to awaken, if you are determined to be awake and enjoy your life in the present moment and be, be a, an ornament to life, be, be a support to the life in and around you. Um, if you want that, it, it may not be what your intention is. And to see that clearly, but if your intention is, then you have to ask yourself, what's in the way of that right now? What's in the way of me doing that? If that's my aspiration, my intention, what is in the way of it? And if you can't find anything, as no one really can on present evidence, then just relax. Wish yourself well, wish everyone well. And make the commitment to stay here in a relaxed way, to stay with the clarity of intention, intention for renunciation, intention, intention for goodwill, intention for non-harming. That's the part of the second part of the Eightfold Path, and then it's followed by all the practices of non-harming, practices of training one's attention to stay here in the present moment, the practice of mindfulness, the practice of, of um, ex uh, expending the effort to, to support and strengthen the things that are helpful for you in this pursuit in your life, and to abandon the things that are not so helpful, and to uh, to learn to become so relaxed and, pat and present that you don't want to be anywhere else anymore. And life becomes really concentrated here, the only place where we can find it anyway. As uh, Goethe put it, until one is committed, there is hesitancy the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself 
then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no one could have dreamed would have come their way. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And since we're at the end of our... Um, end of our time together tonight. I thought that uh, in terms of the intention for non-harming that I would read a beautiful rendition of the five training precepts and uh, we'll offer this as a blessing to ourselves and all beings. Okay, the first precept, aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life I vow to cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking and in my way of life. Precept number two. Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I vow to cultivate loving-kindness and learn ways to work for the well-being of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I vow to practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I'm determined not to steal and not to process, to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. Third precept, aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I vow to cultivate responsibility and learn ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual relations without love and a long-term commitment. To, pre to preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to prevent couples and families from being broken by sexual misconduct. Fourth precept, aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and, do not, and not to criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words that can cause division or discord or that can cause the family or the community to break. I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. Last but not least, where the suffering caused by unmindful consumption I vow to cultivate good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, my society, by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I vow to ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, 
in my consciousness and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I'm determined not to use alcohol or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that contain toxins, such as certain TV programs, magazines, books, films, and conversations. Okay, you know, each of us has to work with our own version of these. I'm aware that to damage my body and my consciousness with these poisons is to betray my ancestors, my parents, my society, future generations. I will work to transform violence, fear, anger, and confusion in myself and in society by practicing a diet for myself and for society. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self-transformation and for the transformation of society. So I think you get the spirit of both for oneself and realizing its deep interbeing. So may our practice together tonight and every night be dedicated to the welfare of all beings, including ourselves. Thank you for your practice. Great gongs.